This is episode number 70 with Diane Mulcahy, the author of The Gig Economy. Welcome to the Good Life Coach Podcast. I am your host, Michelle Lamoureux. The intention of this show is to awaken you to your fullest potential. Join me each week for inspiring interviews to elevate an area of your life, as well as interviews with women entrepreneurs who are creating success on their own terms. Each episode provides actionable tips to guide you to design a life you love. Hey there, and welcome back to the Good Life Coach Podcast. This is your host, Michelle Lamoureux. And whether you work in a corporation, you're an entrepreneur, stay-at-home mom, you work part-time, you've kind of a mix of all of the above, wherever you fall into that equation, today's conversation has something for you. Joining us is Diane Mulcahy, who is the author of a book called The Gig Economy. So before it was even a thing, Diane created the first course in the country on the gig economy, and she teaches it in the MBA program at Babson College. Now, the course gained immediate traction and was named by Forbes as one of the top 10 most innovative business school courses in the country. So Diane speaks about the gig economy at industry conferences and at corporate events around the world. She's also a contributor to Harvard Business Review, a Forbes contributor, and lectures at universities throughout the United States. Diane has been a part of the gig economy for 15 years, and as I mentioned, teaches this MBA program at Babson. And we're going to dive into the whole world of the gig lifestyle today on the show. Lots of great tips and a lot of things that are going to leave you thinking about your life, the values that are important to you, the lifestyle that you're living, and it's going to help you examine what's really important and how you want to be spending your time and what it is that you want to be doing with that time to make a living. I'm so thrilled to have Diane on the show today. So let's meet Diane. Here we go. Hey, Diane, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be having this conversation. I feel like it's timely just because of people I know who are entering the world of the gig economy. You are the author of the book, The Gig Economy, The Complete Guide to Getting Better Work, Taking More Time Off, and Financing the Life You Want. And um, I actually am gifting this book to two people that I know after having read it. It's so good. And um, I know it's going to help them where they are professionally. But I thought it would be helpful to understand how you became an author of a book about the gig economy and started teaching a course at Babson College. How did you get into the world of the gig economy? Yeah, that's a great question. I really, I, I think I started thinking about the world of the gig economy without knowing that that's what it was called um, when I had my first job out of college. And I started working full time uh, in a traditional job at a consulting firm. And I remember thinking, I hate this. You know, I had just come from this wonderful lifestyle in college where Mm -hmm. I had complete control over my own time, my own schedule. I had a variety of classes that I was taking. And then I went to work and I was in an office every day and I was doing, you know, focused on one job, one topic, 
and I really missed the autonomy and the variety Mm -hmm. of the life that I had lived in college. And I thought, I wish there was another way of working that looked a lot more like college, where Mm -hmm. I could have a variety of projects that I was working on and where I could control when I worked, how much I worked, and where I worked. And so at a very young uh, age and a very early point in my career, I had this vision of what I wanted and how it looked different than what was available in the work world. So what did you do? Did you leave your job? Did you just follow that path or what did you do? Well, I continued to work full time uh, and and get experience and leverage. And then just about as soon as I could, um, I quit my job. I took a year off and traveled around the world uh, nice. with my then fiance, <laughs> then husband. Nice. Um, And when I came back, I never really worked a traditional job in an office again. I mean, I, I ended up working in traditional jobs, but they were, um, remote or they were, uh, they gave me flexibility on where I could work. And then I transitioned into working independently. So I haven't worked in a traditional job as a full-time employee in about 15 years. It's been that long. So I, I have been able to make the transition, but it did take some amount of time to gather the experience in order to create the leverage to be able to do that. Okay. So this is so good. So we'll get into that in a second, but I think it's important to just define what the gig economy is for anyone listening who's like, what are they talking about? What does that mean? Yeah, the way that I talk about the gig economy is incredibly broad. I know that there's this perception that the gig economy equals Uber drivers, but that's not how I talk about it. The gig economy, in my definition, is really anybody who doesn't have uh, a full-time job. So you could be a consultant, uh, an independent contractor, an advisor, a freelancer, an on-demand worker, Um, or you could have a full-time job and be working in the gig economy as a side gig. Mm -hmm. So the way that I talk about the gig economy crosses income levels, education levels, and it it crosses all industries and sectors. It's very broad. So Diane, can you give us a couple of examples of what a gig looks like beyond an Uber driver, just to give some examples? Oh, sure. Sure. So a gig could look like, for example, let's say somebody's working a full-time job, you know, at a big accounting firm, one of the big four, they could have a side gig, um, doing the books for small businesses Mm -hmm. in their city, in their neighborhood. Um, you could be somebody who has had a corporate career and has decided, you know what, I don't want to work uh, as a full-time employee anymore. I'm going to go out on my own mm-hmm. and I'm going to consult with a variety of companies in the same area that I've had my full-time career, but now I just want to branch out. I want to be able to work for different companies and work on very a variety of projects uh, over time. So that could be you know, somebody who just goes out and builds a full-time portfolio within an area. It could be somebody who is a freelance writer Mm -hmm. and has a variety of publications that they write for. They, you know, newspapers, magazines, online uh, blogs. 
and they're paid, you know, by the article or by the piece that they write for. Um, it could be somebody who works as an advisor and either an exchange for, you know, equity in a company or mm-hmm. on a retained basis. Um, so there's all different ways that you can structure being an independent worker. Right. And if I'm hearing you correctly, for some people, it is their full-time way of living like it is for you. And for others, it's what my people might be calling a side hustle these days. <laughs> um, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are people who are leaving their corporate jobs and going out on their own. They're hanging out their own shingle. They're forming their own business and they're deciding that they want to take control of their work life and they're essentially starting their own business and working independently for a variety of clients. Um, but for many people, you know, they don't have the experience to do that maybe, or they're not ready to do that yet. And they want to start by working uh, a side gig and in addition to their full-time job. Yeah, to maybe see if they could make it viable enough to make it their full-time thing. They're not letting go of maybe some stability. Exactly. I mean, there are a variety of reasons that people take on side gigs rather than make the leap. I mean, it could be that they, they're afraid to quit their job, that they don't want to give up the perceived security yeah. of a job, or that they need time to test the idea of a side gig, right? I mean, it's a very... Starting a side gig when you have a full-time job is an incredibly low-risk and low-cost way to experiment with whether it is possible and viable for you to turn it into a business. So it's a great first step for people who are thinking about leaving their full-time job. So this is so interesting. So how did you make a living at this? So can you explain to everyone listening what it is that you do for your gig lifestyle? Yeah, for my gig lifestyle, I do a variety of things. And I think that's probably uh, similar to many independent workers that you talk to. I'm probably a little bit unique in that I have two distinct areas of expertise. So I have two industries that I work in simultaneously. One is I'm a professional investor. So I have worked in the private equity industry for the past nearly two decades. And Part of the work that I do is um, as a professional investor, as an independent contractor, as an advisor, and I also work as an advisor for entrepreneurial startup companies, um, advising them on anything from financing to strategy to products. So there's that piece. I also write and speak and teach on private equity. Mm. So I do all of those things. In the gig economy and the future of work, I do the same types of activities. I consult, I advise, I write, speak, and teach, but all on the gig economy and the future of work. It's great because, I mean, the intersection there is really kind of the theme of living what you want to, because when you're advising entrepreneurs or people on getting financing, those are the people who are going out there to live their dream in theory, or they have an idea that they want to see if they can make work. And then with the students, you're teaching them also about taking ownership. I know in the book, you do talk a lot about defining what success means to you and really thinking about the life that you want to live. And you talk about um, some examples of exercises that you give about thinking with the end in mind, like living 
kind of reverse engineering your life and so that you're not stuck as many students are where they're kind of encouraged or they think, oh, I'm smart. I'll go to law school. And then you talk about this in the book and then they wake up 20 years later with the, they're a partner now, but maybe they're not particularly in love with their work anymore, but that's the path that they followed. So um, I think it's great that what you're doing is so aligned with your skill sets and what you're passionate about, because I think that's kind of what we're talking about at the heart of this. Would you say that's true? I do think that's true. And I think, um, you know, the first chapter of my book is on defining your success. And it's the first chapter for a reason. It's because everything really starts there. And when I teach my class, Class, that's the first topic that I cover in class because as as you say from the examples that I've presented in the book, it's so easy mm-hmm. to default into what we see around us. It's so easy to say, okay, I'm gonna graduate, I'm gonna go to college, I'm gonna graduate college, I'm gonna get a job, and then I'm gonna get a spouse, and then I'm gonna get a mortgage <laughs> and two cars and 2.4 kids, like you just look around and that's what everybody's doing. It becomes the path of least resistance. There are a lot of support structures set up to help you move in that direction and to follow that well-worn path. But the reality is that's not the right path for many of us. Mm -hmm. And what I'm trying to do in my class and through this book is to provide the opportunity to step back and look at a blank slate and say, you know, what is my definition of success? What does it mean to me? What are the values that are really important for me to live? What are my priorities in my life? What matters to me? And then how do you think about building a life around those rather than sort of mindlessly drifting into the well-trodden path that everybody else is following. Um, and that's, it's, it sounds easy to say it yeah. and it may be even a little bit glib, but it's actually hard work. It's, yep. it's hard reflective work, but the benefits of doing that are immense because what you realize is, first of all, you get a clear sense of what your what your what your values and priorities and definition of success is. Mm -hmm. And second of all, it's really empowering and exciting to think about building a life around those. And I have seen this happen time and time again with my students. I've been teaching Mm -hmm. for seven years, Mm -hmm. so I've seen a lot of students go through this, as well as people that I've interviewed or coached. What I like to say is, you know, I, I get a lot of people, sort of approaching me after reading my book or, or hearing me talk. And there are no false positives of people mm-hmm. who approach me. I mean, everybody who comes to me and says, I'm, you know, I loved reading your book. I love your ideas. Those are people who will make a change. Yeah. Um, I've just seen it happen. It might not, it might not be tomorrow. It might not be next week, but those are people who actually will restructure their lives and come out the other end with something that looks completely different than, than where they started. Yeah. It's really an incredible process to watch. I I can imagine that it is. And I'm actually curious because, you know, as somebody who is, I've relaunched myself in the last couple of years, my husband started a company two years ago. We're both sort of all in on this very (laughs) different lifestyle. We left Boston. 
And we wanted uh, location independence to be able to work from wherever we wanted to. We're trying to create this lifestyle. But like you said, it's hard work and it requires a lot of uh, grit and a lot of self-reflection and also being able to pivot based on what's happening. But I'm actually curious because I'm seeing kind of as a Gen Xer, I'm seeing people I know who are within big corporations, for example, and then getting laid off. But they're 50 years old and suddenly they've got the mortgage and the three kids and the private school and they just bought the new house and they lose their job. And, you know, you talk to that person and they tell you about 10 more people in their situations, their peers, their friends. But then you have the millennials or like the younger generation, the people that you're teaching in the courses. And I think that those of us who are Gen X, to some degree, come from a different, we watched our parents maybe have one to two jobs, max. But what are you seeing as the difference between Gen Xers versus your students in terms of their mindset and approach? And I feel like, and and I feel like, sorry, this is a long way of saying, like, I just feel like the millennials or the younger people are sort of like, this is the norm for them. Whereas those of us who are a little older, it's like a little, it's a little more unnerving or like uh, there's more at stake. Yes. So that's a big question. So I'm going to parse that out. Um, I I think, first of all, it's important to just say that when you look at all of the data on independent workers and the surveys that have been done, uh, you know, gathering the opinions directly from independent workers, what you find is the vast majority are working that way by choice. Mm -hmm. Generally, about 75% or more of independent workers say that they are working this way by choice. By the way, the majority also say they wouldn't go back to work for any amount of money in a full-time traditional job. So that's a really interesting data point. (laughs) But that is not to discount that there is a minority, about 25%, that are working in the gig economy because they have to. They they didn't choose that. They would rather be in a full-time job. So that's just to set the scale of you know, who's choosing and who's coping. Okay. Um, in terms of the difference of, of between generations, yeah. definitely among millennials, uh, I think it's less that they view the gig economy as, as a norm than it is um, they don't understand or see the need for a traditional structure of okay. a full-time job in an office, eight hours a day, five days a week. You know, they they don't see the point of it. There's all this technology that allows them to work from everywhere, to multitask, to collaborate and interact online. And they are digitally native that way. So it seems to millennials a bit forced to go into an office every day and have this very structured lifestyle. And they're rebelling against that. They yeah. They actively demand the ability to work autonomously and online, which is which is how they have lived their lives yeah. to date. Yeah. So it's not that they're embracing the, the gig economy. I, I think it's more that they're embracing a different way of working. Mm. Um, and certainly there are many millennials that look for full-time jobs, that want full-time jobs, that are seeking some kind of financial security and stability. So it's not that they're all about independent work, but they are about working differently. Mm. For Gen Xers, I do agree with you that, you know, Gen Xers are kind of the sandwich generation, yeah. right? We we're sort of in between, you know, the this this traditional career 
that boomers had where they yeah. had one or two jobs max and where they retired with a lifelong pension that's yeah. gone that's yeah. off the table yeah. in one generation that disappeared but gen xers have built a career that looks very traditional in many cases and so it's it can be challenging for them to shift their mindset and their way of working to adapt to the gig economy that's yeah. not true for all Gen Xers, but for many, that can be a challenge. So I agree with you that they're in the most difficult place potentially. On the other hand, Gen Xers are the ones that have built a career, have the experience, have the expertise, and have the skills to be able to go out and work independently and command the compensation that will allow them to make a living in many cases, not all cases. It depends on the type of work that they've done. Um, so they're in an interesting position of having potential to be successful in the gig economy, but maybe not the desire or all of the abilities and skills that they need to. So some amount of change is required. Yeah. And they just may have the financial stress, you know, because now they've created a lifestyle around the security or the perceived security of a of a big corporate job, and that's suddenly gone. And so, the instinct or the you know the 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 what's comfortable is to go back to what they know, which may not be secure. Um, you know, you actually write about in your book. You said um, it's you said since jobs no longer offer security, we have to create it ourselves. The so the strongest security we can create for ourselves isn't job security, it's income security. So the women listening here are either, they, there's definitely entrepreneurs, there's definitely women living the gig economy. There's the stay-at-home moms who think about, gosh, I'd really like to make some money and have something for myself uh, other than just being at home. Um, there's others who are working in those big companies uh, covers the gamut of who's listening. Can you give some tips about how people can think about creating income security? Because this is one area that I think is so important wherever, wherever you are on the path. That's absolutely true. And I think, you know, the first step is to understand and, and um, just come to grips with the idea that there really isn't any job security. And that's, it's a hard message mm. for people to hear and really absorb because there's a perception that if you or somebody in your household has a full-time job and a paycheck that shows up in your bank account every other week, there's this perception or feeling that that's very stable and secure. Mm. But if you read any of the business press, you know that at any time, companies get acquired, they change direction, they change products, they change markets, they change strategies, they expand they, in, into different areas, mm -hmm. they um, reduce their workforce, right? They're contracting. Mm -hmm. I work in the startup world. Companies fail to raise financing yeah. or fail to raise as much financing or their product doesn't get the traction that they had in anticipated. So there, we live in such a dynamic and globally competitive economy that companies really don't have the ability to offer the stability that they used to. 
Um, so there really is no job security anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think the best example of that when I was teaching one semester, it was spring semester, and my students went off on spring break. And I teach in the MBA program. So a lot of my students are, are out working full time and mm-hmm. you know, they have kids and they're married. They're all different ages. Right. Um, and we came back after spring break, and one of my students said, you know, raised his hand and said, you won't believe what happened to me over spring break. And I was like, we don't need to hear that. <laughs> and he said, no, no, it's relevant to the class. And I said, okay, well, we'll tell your story. And he said, um, while I was gone, my company was acquired uh, and we have a new CEO and he's 28 and I don't know if I have a job. Oh, wow. And I think that that was the perfect example of how precarious our employment is at any time. Yeah. So the idea of relying on job security, relying on one company to keep employing you, I would say, I would argue is risky and mm. precarious. Mm-hmm. And instead, what I argue is thinking about how do you build income security, meaning how do you bring in income from the work that you do, whether it's working full-time for one company or working independently and contracting with multiple companies, Mm. whether it's working a full-time job and a side gig, or, and whether it's doing a combination of those things, active income, as well as creating passive income by investing or you know, investing in real estate, rental properties, you know, looking for ways, you know, establishing, pulling together an online course where people can buy the class and that becomes an ongoing stream of passive income. Mm. So thinking about your household, like you do your investment portfolio. I mean, none of us would put all of our investments into one company, but yet we put our household security behind one company without even thinking about it. So it's the same kind of philosophy. How can you look at your household and think about diversifying your income streams so that if one income stream contracts or goes away entirely, Mm -hmm. you don't go from 100 to zero, you go from 100 to 80 and you still have other income streams. So it's really shifting our mindset around how we structure our financial lives and how we create our household income and going from a very concentrated model that is risky to a more diverse model that is less risky. Right. And you even talk about in the book about diversification in terms of how many gigs you have, but not over diversifying. Can you talk a little bit more about this for somebody who is all in on the gig economy and wants that lifestyle full time? Yeah. I mean, the point I was trying to make there is, um, you know, I was I was sort of raising the point, is there such a thing as over-diversification? Mm. And my answer was, well, not really. Mm. Um, because even if, and the example that I use in the book is a writer. So you can diversify by writing, you know, you can you can write for a newspaper, let's say, and you can write some short stories and essays for like a literary magazine. And you might even do some, you know, blog writing or social media contracting. Um, But you're still honing your craft as a writer, even though you're exploring all these different genres. And so what I'm, you know, the example I was trying to the what I was the point that I was trying to illustrate was, is there a way that you can 
diversify the skills that you have um, in order to create multiple income streams, but still be developing expertise in whatever the thing is that you do. It's sort of the best of both worlds. Right. Because you you get to do what you love. And that's also part of the theme, I think, again, with the book, you talk about, um, you know, uh, what is it, Bonnie? What's her last name? The woman who wrote The Regrets of the Dying? Yes, yes. Forgetting her last name. But, you know, people's biggest regrets were not living the life that they wanted to and following what everyone else wanted them to do. So if you can do the gig aligned with where you're skills lie and your passions lie. That seems like that's the dream, right? It's about, and you talk about this, the American dream now is more about self-actualization versus financial or material, I shouldn't say financial, but material gains. Yes. I think there's been a, a definite shift from focusing on quantity of stuff, which is how the American dream has traditionally been defined, you know, back to the mortgage and the two cars and things like that, to quality of experience. So we're going from quantity of stuff to quality of experience. And I just want to return to this idea that you raised earlier about, um, you know, the Gen Xer who gets laid off and they have all these financial commitments and they have this lifestyle. and, And what about that? Right? Because that's a difficult situation to be in. We can all imagine what would happen if, if we suddenly got laid off and the lifestyle that we had built was at risk. Um, and I think that, you know, one that argues for, for some of the topics that I cover in the book around having an exit strategy and having diversification of income. But I also think it goes back to defining our success and, I think one of the reasons that people end up in lifestyles where they have enormous fixed costs that require them to work at a, at a certain level is because, you know, their earnings have increased over time yeah. and they've just sort of without thinking too much about it, you know, bought the bigger house, bought the nicer car, sent their kids to private school, you know, whatever it is, whatever (laughs) the choices are, decided to take much nicer vacations, you know, um, And I think that one of the things that thinking about working differently or being put in a situation where you have to work differently because you've been laid off, one of the things that that does is it forces, it forces you to sit down and reflect on, okay, where am I spending my money? And is that actually really important to me? And and I, again, I know that sounds like kind of a superficial question, but it's really quite profound because if you start looking at your life and saying, you know, how much does it matter to me to have a big house? Mm -hmm. Is that important? Now to some people that's super important. You know, they love family, they love hosting, they love entertaining. Home is really what matters to them. Fine. Um, you know, how important is it for me to have a really nice car? Um, does that matter to me? What, what value does that fulfill in my life? How, how much of a priority is it for me to say, you know, at the end of the day, when I start triaging where I spend my money, having a nice car is near the top of the list. And there's no judgment here. It's not about this is this choice is better or this choice is worse. It's really just about getting clear on what matters to you. And what's interesting is when people do that exercise, what they often realize is that they are buying a lifestyle 
that they don't even really want or value. And that introduces enormous flexibility and opportunity to create a different one. Mm. And I can tell you from experience that many, many times the different one costs less. Mm. And the reason is because they hone in on the things that matters. So instead of having the big house, the big car, the amazing vacations, the private schools, the, um, you know, the second home, they figure out what really matters. Okay. We really want to make sure that we travel and spend time as a family and show our kids the world. And that's what matters. And then all of a sudden, like the resources go there and it becomes clear that other things matter less. Mm -hmm. And there's a comfort in making different choices. One of the, one of the interviews that I, that I, uh, made that I did for the book. And one of the people that I profile in the book is a guy who is exactly in the situation that you described. Mm -hmm. He was a breadwinner for the Mm -hmm. family, three young kids, all the trappings. He was an executive in a large company, Mm -hmm. all the trappings. And the company started doing layoffs and he got laid off and he was absolutely panicked. And he was, he was looking everywhere. He had a, he had a spray and pray approach to getting a new job. He was just (laughs) panicked. He's like, I have to find something else. You know, I have all these expenses. Right. And we had a conversation, a coaching conversation, and we started talking about values and priorities and what really mattered and what was success and what kind of family life did he want to create, et cetera, et cetera. He ended up having a lot of conversations with his wife and, and doing some reflecting and he completely restructured his life. He decided, they decided to move back to the town that they grew up in. They bought a smaller house intentionally, less than mm-hmm. they could have afforded. Mm-hmm. They picked a school district where their kids could go to a public school. They decided to focus much more on family experiences, on traveling, on doing things together, having meaningful experiences, and much less on buying a big house and having the best cars. And he also, um, you know, by changing the financial structure of his life, felt more in control of his life, was able to get a job with a startup company that was a bit riskier because he didn't need to have that very very high income Mm. that he needed to rely on. Um, And it changed his whole life. So I think that's an example of somebody who's in, who goes from a very high fixed cost life without a lot of degrees freedom, redefines what matters and ends up in a much more meaningful and financially flexible situation. Yeah, absolutely. And I see that all the time. I see it all the time. And I'm sure you do. And and so this is why it's so great to talk to you. Actually, that story that you talked about in the book is one of the people that I'm sending your book to was living that story resonated so deeply. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is exactly what's happening to this person I care about. Like, this is a great way to think about the value system and what you talk about in chapter eight about being financially flexible, really looking at what's important and how you can uh, live your life around what really matters and kind of take down any of those perceived ideals of what success looks like, right? The bigger house or the private school or whatever. Not, you know, if that stuff doesn't matter to you and it's it, then then work around that. So I, I really love that you talked about that and shared that particular example from from the book. Um, I think there are people who would love 
to make a lifestyle, regardless of their age, where they fall in, uh, in the gig economy. I'm curious, what do you teach the students? How long is your course at Babson? And is it based on what I've read in this book? Like, what are some of the things that the students are walking away with? What are some of the tools or resources that um, maybe you could share today for those people who really, they want what you're talking about? That's really the lifestyle that, that appeals to them. Yeah, my, my course at Babson is a half a semester, mm-hmm. so it's not super long. Yeah. Uh, it is a bit intense. <laughs> <laughs> um, and as I tell my students, it's not your, your typical MBA class. Right. There is a lot of reading and reflection. I, mm. you know, the book really grew out of the class. Mm. Um, I started, you know, I created the class and I started teaching it as a way to explore this topic. When I created the class, which was about seven years ago, the gig economy wasn't even a thing. Mm. Nobody knew what I was talking about. People were like, <laughs> oh, are you teaching a computer science class? Is this like gigabytes? <laughs> and I mean, it's hard to imagine that now, but it, that's how it was. Wow. And um, so when I started teaching it, it was a way for me to explore and iterate on mm. this concept with real people, right? With real students. Sure. Um, so the class is about a half semester and it has evolved since I started teaching it for sure. Yeah. When I first started teaching it, I kind of fell back on my my background and and the subjects that I was comfortable with, which is, you know, economics, um looking at this as an economic trend, looking mm. at startups that were emerging, looking at um you know, how is this changing the economy? How is this changing businesses? How is this changing the workplace? And what I realized after teaching it for several years is that I I iterated it to make it much more personal, Mm. um, which was a little outside my comfort zone, to be honest. Mm. And that, so so the, the book really grew out of the topics that I now teach in the course after iterating over several years Mm. and the exercises, the book has tons of exercises. The exercises in there are the ones that I've given to my students. You know, I've modified them, I've tweaked them, I've iterated them. And they're the ones that have ended up resonating the most with my students Mm. and being the most impactful. I mean, those are the ones where the students come up to me and say, you know, this was a game changer for me. Wow. So that's the, the book really grew out of the class is sort of the order of events. Hmm. Um, and yeah, the exercises are a great way to kind of go through and develop a plan. I mean, I think in terms of for listeners who are thinking, I want to do this. How do I do this? Yeah. I think there are three, there are three really immediate steps um, to take. So one is create an exit strategy. So mm-hmm. wherever you are in your life, whether you are somebody who's working in a corporation or somebody who's working part-time or somebody who's not working at all, maybe you're retired or you're a stay-at-home parent, think about how do you change that, that situation? How do you exit from that situation? What are the things that you need to do in order to create a different kind of life? So the most common example is if you're somebody who's working in a corporation, uh, you know, the exercise that I would, that I would give you is to imagine that your boss came into your office and said, in six months, I'm laying you off. Hmm. Now, 
knowing that, what would you do? Mm. What would you do professionally? You know, who would you reach out to? What kinds of um, companies would you contact? What kinds of opportunities would you start looking for? What would you do financially? Mm. What would you do personally? And so that's the same kind of exercise you can go through no matter what your situation is. You know, if somebody told you in six months that, you know, X, how would you prepare for that? How would you make a change? And maybe a year is the right timeline. Um, sometimes people feel like that gives them more breathing space. Sure. But create an exit strategy so that you're never caught out as the victim. Laying off should be, be getting laid off should be a cause for celebration, yeah. not a cause for stress. Love that. So have an exit strategy. Um, and the second thing is, you know, think about always having a side gig. Again, even if you're retired or you're a stay-at-home parent, having something that you do on the side, even if it's not for income, even if it's volunteering, serving on a board, a nonprofit board, the reason it's important to always be doing something is that it still is expanding your network, yeah. it's developing your skills, and it's opening up future opportunities. So even without the benefit of earning any money, you're still getting all of those benefits. So the idea is to what, wherever you are in your life, always have a side gig because it means that you're always creating future opportunities for yourself, um, regardless of, of what might happen. So I think that those are two really uh, immediate and important steps that people can take to start thinking about moving into the gig economy. And you know, I just want to emphasize that none of this has to happen overnight. Mm. I mean, the whole point is you have the ability to create a plan for this. And I think that makes it a lot easier to contemplate if you give yourself the gift of time <laughs> to be able to execute. Absolutely. And I, and I'm going to, I'll be linking your book in the show notes. I loved a lot of the exercises I was looking through. I was like, oh, I need to sit down and do these. <laughs> it's like, these are great questions, great things to be thinking of. And I loved the part where you talked in the book about the exit strategy. I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. Cause you talk about how companies, startups, they have an exit strategy in mind, whether they're looking to sell off or whatever. And so to think about your life in those terms is very empowering. Um, and like you said, then you don't end up the victim. And, and I think the common theme here, the, the common theme is the change in mindset, whether yes. it's, you know, taking control over your own definition of success and creating that, not relying on other people's or taking control of your professional life and determining your own exit strategy and creating a plan. All of these exercises are designed to help you gain control, autonomy, and power over your own life. Absolutely. Now, I have to ask, because people are going to be thinking, can I really make a living? Can I make a living out of this gig lifestyle? I know you do, but what are your thoughts on that? I mean, you teach this, you encourage it. So I'm just curious what your experience has been and what you could say to that? I mean, my experience has been, I've, I've interviewed a lot of independent workers, obviously for, both as research from doing this book and yeah. then, you know, people that I work with and uh, advise and coach and run into when I speak or interview for articles I'm writing. And the answer is yes, you can make a living. I mean, I, I feel like that, that question is 
not dissimilar from asking somebody who's looking for a job, you know, can you really make a a living, you know, working full time (laughs) in a job? Right. And the answer is, you know, hopefully, I mean, it depends (laughs) on the job, right? If you're, if, if you, if you're looking for a job as an actor, it's a lot harder than if you're looking for a job as an investment banker, Mm -hmm. right? The same, the same rules apply in the gig economy. I mean, Mm -hmm. if you're a, if you're developing a portfolio of gigs and you're a software developer, it's going to be easier to make a nice living than if you're an executive assistant, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the more skills you have, the more expertise, the more experience, um, the more of a lifelong learner that you are, the more that you have the ability and the interest in developing new skills and learning, you know, the better off you'll be. It's it's exactly the same as the traditional jobs economy in that way. So the answer is yes, you can make a living. Um, and of course, implicit in that question is also what is a living? A living is covering your expenses. Well, what are your expenses? Mm-hmm. And that goes back to really being mindful about what matters to you, what, what kind of life do you want to create? Because when you work independently, the time money trade-off becomes super clear mm-hmm. in that when you work independently, you're making decisions about how much to work all the time. Mm. And the reason that you're working more or less for the most part is to generate more income. Absolutely. And the reason you're generating more income or revenues is to cover your expenses. So all of a sudden it becomes it becomes a very clear, explicit trade-off. Well, do I want to work for the whole summer? You know, do I want to take on a whole bunch of new clients and work really hard over the summer to generate this income? Or do I want to maybe take on fewer clients, work less and spend time at the beach with my kids, right? Mm -hmm. That's the trade-off you're very clearly making when you work independently. And so it really throws onto the table in a very explicit way. Why are you working? How much do you really need to generate? And what's more important to you, generating the income or taking that time? The opportunity cost for your time, I think, is much more visible when you work independently than when you commit to a job and you sort of, at the time you take the job, you basically sell all of your time during the work week. Like that's, that's the deal. Yeah. So you've kind of written that time off. It's no longer an explicit trade-off. Um, so I think you can make a living. Yes. I think the caveats are, you know, what are the skills and experience and expertise that you bring to the table or are willing to develop? And then secondly is what's a living, Mm -hmm. what is the living that matters to you? And, and, you know, can you create a portfolio that gives you that. Absolutely. That's that's a great answer. Thank you. And and not to make you have to foresee in the future, but what do you foresee as the future of big companies versus gig lifestyle? You see these WeWorks and co-works. My husband's, you know, one of these co-working spaces. It's so the trend and just growing. People do want that autonomy. Um, where do you see things going in the next 20 years? I mean, I think in the next 20 years, if I were placing a bet, if I were a betting woman, my my bet would be on the growth of 
independent work, the growth of a distributed or remote workforce. Mm. And I think that's not to say that traditional jobs and traditional offices are going to disappear completely, certainly not in the next two decades. But I do think if you look at, you know, if now it's 90% traditional, 10% kind of remote, co-working, distributed, independent. Yeah. I think it's going to look a lot more like 60-40 or mm-hmm. 50-50 mm-hmm. Um, if, if you look ahead. And I think the reason is that, you know, one, companies are figuring out the benefits yeah. of having independent workers that they can access when they want, when they need them, you know, during their busy seasons, when they're launching a new product, when they're entering a new marketplace, um, when they have a specific skill set that they need. And they're also realizing the benefits of not having to spend so much money on corporate real estate. I mean, if you look at a lot of companies, it's one of their top three expenses. So true. So companies are really realizing the benefits. Um, you know, the counterbalancing force within companies is companies hate to give up control Mm -hmm. over their employees because (laughs) once you stop, you know, once you, once you, once you start purchasing labor by the project or by the hour, you have a lot less control than when you purchase everything. Um, so companies have a hard time releasing control and companies don't trust their employees. Yeah. So it's very difficult for companies to get to a place where they're comfortable with independent workers and with remote workers and distributed workers. It requires a whole different way of managing, a different way of scoping labor, a different way of scoping and organizing work. So there are challenges too, but big driver on the corporate side. And on the worker's side, yeah. I mean, as we discussed earlier, traditional work doesn't work for everybody. No. And a lot, many, many workers want a different kind of work life. They don't want to commute for two hours a day. They don't want to sit in an, you know, in a cube all day in a chair, which is a very unhealthy lifestyle. Yeah. They <laughs> want to be able to do deep work in a quiet environment. They want to be able to pick the times and the places that they work best. They want, people want to do good work and independent work gives a lot of the flexibility um, to the worker, a lot of agency in figuring out, well, where, when, and how do you do your best work and go ahead and do that. And that's really satisfying and fulfilling to a lot of people. Um, so work is ripe for disruption. Uh, traditional work isn't working for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. And the gig economy and independent work is one answer. There might be other other ways of working that emerge in the future that are all, uh, that provide other answers. Mm-hmm. But for now, the gig economy is a really attractive option for a lot of workers, and it solves a lot of the pain points that traditional work creates. So for that reason, I think there's going to be enormous demand um, from workers, and companies are going to have to respond to that mm-hmm. in order to access the best talent. So, uh, and, and of, of course, technology continues to grow and sure. develop and to facilitate this. I mean, there's more collaborative tools, there's more real ways to interact online, right? We went from telephone 
to online to video, uh, which makes a huge difference. So technology is going to continue to facilitate this transition and make it easier to collaborate, to work together, and to interact in a meaningful way without necessarily being in the same office uh, uh, every day of the week. (laughs) Absolutely. I think people are looking forward to that. Um, I think so too. I, well, I know it from all my friends who are still in the traditional structures. Um, so hopefully those companies will catch on. And even if they don't, you know, have contract workers, even if they give the flexibility to their employees, I think they'll find greater productivity and happier employees. Like, I think it would be a win-win, but that's for another conversation, that's, I guess. It's so, it's so true. I all often say that there's not one study, and I know this because I've looked for it, there's not one that says that working in an office five days a week, eight hours a day, maximizes anything that is material to the workplace. It doesn't maximize productivity. It doesn't maximize collaboration, engagement, happiness of your workers, none of that. But when you survey independent workers, Mm -hmm. being able to work remotely and to decide when and where you work mm-hmm. does maximize productivity, engagement, happiness, health, all of those all things of that we want mm-hmm. our workers. And the answer is so clear, and it's right there. Well, hopefully they'll catch on because they're going to lose, keep losing good people. And I, and I think of a lot of women who are moms who really are wanting that ability to work from home, to do their good work, but from home or not have to do, like you said, that two hour commute a day. So we'll see where it goes. But um, Diane, I'm I'm curious, how do you define success? Ooh, the the real question. Have I done my own work? That's right. But I ask all my guests this question, which is funny. (laughs) Actually, the next, this question and the next one, I know you talk about, I think it's on page 19 of your book. I'm like, oh, this is so funny. You even ask about, uh, the definition of a good life, you know? And so that's your next question, <laughs> but how, how do you define yeah. success? Um, you know, I've thought a lot about this question and I have to say that, that it's really encapsulated in a quote that I saw mm. somewhere and I, I can't even attribute it. Um, I, I've looked it up and I can't find where it originated, mm. but the quote is health, love, money, and the time to enjoy them. And I think to me, that's what success looks like. You have all of those three things and then the time mm. to enjoy them. Love it. Um, can you leave... So that's my definition. I love it. Um, can you leave the women listening with your three best tips on living a good life? Yeah, I mean, my, this, you know, my best tips for me um, are, one, to be intentional. Mm. Um, two, to be quiet which means living a life that has a lot of listening mm-hmm. and a lot of reflection. And then three, to be willing to follow your heart, your gut, and your curiosity. So I think those three combined to me make me feel like I'm living a really good life. And you are. And thank you for showing us that <laughs> what's possible. I loved your <laughs> answers. Um, Diane, where can people learn more about you and the work that you do? The easiest place to learn more about me is my website, which is dianemulcahy.com. And that links to, uh, I have a monthly newsletter I do on the gig economy. If you want to keep up on 
things that I write and just I curate kind of news about what's going on. Mm. And I also have links to my articles and podcasts and TV interviews and things like that. So it's a great way. It's a great like one stop shop to keep up with everything uh, gig economy. Love it. This has been such an honor. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on today and talk to us about this. I found it so helpful and interesting and I so appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. I loved your really thoughtful questions. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I really hope that you took away a lot of key information or insights from today's conversation, as well as just some questions to be thinking about. If you want to dive into this deeper, head on over to thegoodlifecoach.com forward slash 070 for all of the show notes and the links referenced today. And while you're there, definitely sign up for the weekly newsletter because the freebie that I'm offering is a questionnaire called Discover Your Purpose. And if you are a little unclear or need an opportunity to re-examine the path that you are on, those questions will help you delve deeper into what's important to you, where your passions lie, and help bring you some clarity. So I would love for you to be a part of the community. And when you receive that welcome email, be sure to hit reply and say hello and let me know what kind of topics you want me to cover on the show. I read every email that comes in and would really love to hear from you. So thank you so much for tuning in today. Be sure to forward this conversation to anyone who needs some help around what they should be doing with their lives, where the gig economy could maybe play a role and would be beneficial to them. It's really easy to forward the interviews. So please do take a second to do that. And if you've yet to subscribe, just hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast player so that you never miss an episode. Thanks as always for tuning in. And I look forward to reconnecting with you next Wednesday. Bye for now.